everyone, and welcome to Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. I'm your host, Ben Watkins, and I'm joined by my co-hosts... Ben Baver. And John Lopolato. And we have with us a special guest today, Aaron Lucas. Hi. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Before we get into it, um, I believe we're going to be discussing a objection to the fine-tuning argument. Um, but could you give us a little bit of a background on yourself? Um, you know, what, what got you into philosophy of religion? Yeah, why philosophy of religion? Sure. So I was raised in a family that I guess you could say is a Jewish family. But so my dad is Jewish and my mom is, I guess you could say she's a Christian. But I've learned since then that they're basically all atheists now. And when I was about four years old, that's probably when I became an atheist because I was watching that TV show Rugrats on Nickelodeon. Do you remember that show? I do. Yeah. So there was an episode where they retell the Exodus story. Yeah. And, okay. And, and, uh, the yeast in the bread. And... Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, probably before seeing that video, I'd never even thought about the concept of God. And I watched the, the episode and I was said, oh, this sounds made up. So I asked my parents about it, and they said, well, you know, some people, this is what we believe. Other people believe different things. And as soon as I heard that there wasn't some sort of agreement about this, I decided, oh, okay, well, this is made up. And I didn't really think about it again until college when I had a friend who very abruptly became a, an evangelical Christian. He was, you know, flirting with ideas about young earth creationism. And that's so our back and forth is kind of what got me into this. And just since then, it's just been a source of casual interest for me. Oh, and, man, you, you came in on the dark <laughs> side, <laughs> the younger creationist side. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still taken aback by the four year old atheist. Also, you're making me feel old because when Rugrats was a show, <laughs> that was something that little kids watched. Yeah, yeah. And I'm about to learn things from you, so <laughs> I feel old and stupid. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I, I, it seems like there you inferred uh, your atheism from religious disagreement, from what it sounds like. Yeah, I guess so. I think it's maybe a combination of that, and maybe, I mean, as a four year old, I was not making a Humean argument against miracles, but <laughs> that was sort of what I was doing. And I was like, well, this, I've never seen this happen before. It doesn't seem to ever happen. The only thing, the only piece of evidence I have to go on, I mean, since then, I have learned more sophisticated arguments for miracles. Sure, the argument sure. that was being given to me at that time was my mom saying, you know, something like <laughs> this happened. So I decided hey, it's more likely that this just didn't happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously one of the standing criticisms, I think, of any particular religious tradition is the problem of religious disagreement. And I think you were even able to appreciate the reason giving force of that back then which is well, i'm impressed <laughs> well i might also be remembering this incorrectly and making it sure. seem like i was a very smart oh, yeah. four year old <laughs> confabulation and hindsight bias and all that right. good stuff yeah uh, yeah i think it's a good argument regardless but <laughs> yeah although it might be a slightly better argument for agnosticism like undermining the justification you thought you had for belief in god right yeah. That's true. i guess you, i guess yeah. you can make some sort of a argument about intrinsic probabilities and say in the absence of positive evidence theism has a lower intrinsic probability yeah well you're not going to make that argument at four yes yeah that's not, that's not what i was thinking <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I just want to watch a four-year-old drop the term intrinsic probability and just watch everyone's room <laughs> get real big. Oh, my gosh. Like, what did that kid just say? <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought it would be interesting to have you on this episode on our show because um, I w- really liked your paper, Naturalism, Fine-Tuning, and Flies. Right. Um, yeah. And in that paper, you made a particular point that I thought was super um, – a good point, um, which was that basically we can't be sure that our laws are any less contingent, right, than than our constants, uh, the fundamental constants that uh, fine-tuning proponents talk about. So yeah, fine-tuning, but... fine-tuning argument basically says that um, you could vary, if you were to vary the constants just a little bit, then life wouldn't be able to exist, right, the fundamental constants that govern the way that the physical world works Mm -hmm. um but they hold the laws of physics constant they just vary the the values that go that you plug into these equations right and so what they're 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 only considering um how likely it would be for life to exist in possible worlds or possible universes that share our laws of nature right right so uh, uh, can I ask one question just to make sure, sure I'm, I'm clear on what you were saying there, Ben? Um, yeah. They hold the laws of nature constant and all the constants except for one, right? You just change. They could. Right? Because I, I think that, cause it's a different claim if you say that you change multiple constants. The, the claim yeah, that I'm sure. focusing on is I'm, I'm willing to grant for the sake of argument. I'm not a physicist, so I'm in no position to dispute the claim that Given the laws of physics we have, if you consider all possible universes that have those physics, the, the subset of universes that are life-permitting is extremely small. That's the, the core claim of the fine-tuning argument. Okay. And what they do is they'll, they'll give a Bayesian argument where they say, on naturalism, it is extremely unlikely that the universe that just so happens to be actual would be a life-permitting one. But on theism, it's not so unlikely. So this increases the probability of theism relative I to gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so, but the thing that they're slipping in here is that in the piece of back, they're not comparing theism and atheism. They're comparing theism and the law and then the conjunction of the laws of nature. So, let me read this quote from Richard Swinburne, who is, I'm sure everybody knows, is a, a Christian philosopher. So, he says, given the actual laws of nature, boundary conditions and physical constants, we have to lie within a narrow range of the present values if intelligent life is to evolve. So there's that big asterisk, which is given the actual laws of nature. So if we grant for the sake of argument that this ratio is small, which is possible life-permitting universes with our laws to total possible universes with our laws, if that's a small ratio, that's not the same thing as saying that this ratio is small. Possible life-permitting universes compared to total possible universes. Mm -hmm. Because if we're going to play the game of what would the universe look like if we change this constant, why not change the equations themselves? So if you'll take, for example, the equation for uh, the Newtonian equation for force of gravity, what the fine-tuning argument does is it changes the variable g. But it doesn't consider what would happen if we had an entirely different so and the other other variables in this equation are you know the mass of two different objects and the distance between them but it's assuming that the universe any universe 
would have to be governed by this equation. And you can imagine a universe that has a totally different equation or just gravity isn't even a thing in these hypothetical universes or there's other variables. And, you know, there's no reason to think that if I know on your previous episode, you had Felipe Leon talking about mitigated modal skepticism and he right. might disagree with this, which is what I'm about to say is that there's no reason to think that there are other possible universes with different possible laws. And he would disagree with that. But I suppose if you're, if we're not in a position to, um, think about other possible laws altogether, then the fine-tuning argument doesn't work to right. begin, with, to begin I, with. I think mitigated modal skepticism would cut the fine-tuning argument off just by saying you, yeah, you don't know right. that you so, could have different constants. So yeah. I think for the sake of argument, we're granting, hey, we these constants yeah. could be different. And it sounds like the thrust of your point is that, well, we also don't have reason to think that the laws themselves couldn't be different right. as well. And as far as I know, there is no def uh, proponent of the fine-tuning argument that denies this. So, you know, William, all the big the big names in apologetics and philosophy of religion, for example, William Lane Craig has said, he says, maybe in a universe governed by different equations, the gravitational constant could have a greatly different value and life could still exist. And Robin Collins, who is another Christian philosopher who is probably still one of the the you know go-to guy on the fine-tuning argument yeah he's the leading leading yeah, guy i'd say maybe maybe him and and luke barnes luke barnes yeah for sure uh he says our physics does not tell us what would happen if we increase the strong nuclear force by a factor of 10 to the 1000 power if we naively applied current physics to that situation we should conclude that no complex life would be possible however entirely new and almost inconceivable physics could occur that make life uh possible if new physics applies so they're, they're saying that we have no idea what the ratio of life-permitting universes is to possible universes. So, so I guess I would just begin by saying, okay, why should we care about this if, if we're only looking at this tiny reference class and not the entire population of total possible universes? And Robin Collins, so I'm referring a lot to, if anybody wants to read this, this is his chapter in the, natural, in the uh, Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. I'd say that's still probably the best defense of the fine-tuning argument that I've come across. And he basically says his reason for focusing on just this reference class and not all possible universes is just the unfortunate fact that this is the only reference class that we have epistemic access to. So this is just a purely pragmatic reason. It's not an epistemic justification for focusing on this this reference class. So my my criticism of the argument is it's unfortunate that the reference class that we have epistemic access to is so small but that doesn't justify us ignoring the rest of it and i think we have to just suspend judgment on this probability because i think the relevant probability is total possible universes to i'm sorry total uh life permitting universes compared to all possible universes yeah i think that's a right. great point but can i can i stop you for a second because i think we should um clarify something. Sure. So when you talk about the total set of possible universes, uh, I wonder what that set is, what kind of possibility we're talking about. So it's probably not just, say, nomological possibility, because that's all the possibilities that are consistent with, with the, the, actual, the actual laws of nature we have, right? So it would have so, to be metaphysical possibility or... Yeah, yes. It wouldn't be broadly logical possibility, because... 
just because we can coherently describe it doesn't mean right it's actually something that could happen be the case and i don't think that fine-tuning argument advocates deny that these other types of universes are metaphysically possible they think they're metaphysically possible they say it's just safe to ignore them for the purposes of this argument and to focus just on the narrow reference class so and i yeah go ahead uh, so i guess what i was going to say was it seems i seem i have a hard time discerning between metaphysically possible universes which when we're talking about universes that have different laws of nature versus basically logically possible universes um once you're talking about what the laws of nature permit it seems hard to make a difference between the two i don't know what criteria you would use to rule out a logically possible universe and say well that's metaphysically impossible yeah so i mean uh i was talking about nomological possibility that's the kind of possibility um that that is just consistency with the actual laws of nature that's different from a logical possibility right right? and uh, logical possibility is basically just consistent uh Something that's consistently describable. Yeah, coherent description where yeah, yeah. you can't. There's there is no apparent contradiction in the description of it. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and I think for the purposes of of what we're talking about here is all fine tuning argument advocates seem to be think seem to be saying that these other possible laws are metaphysically uh, possible. And one of the reasons I have for thinking that this is their their opinion is that sometimes people will say in response to the fine-tuning argument, perhaps there's a grand theory, a theory of everything that shows that the the only nomologically possible values for the constants are the life-permitting ones. So fine-tuning is due to, to physical, physical necessity. necessity. And this, the traditional response to that is to say, well, isn't it a tremendous coincidence that of all the possible physics we could have had, it just so happens that the one that is physically necessary is the one that... <laughs> so they seem to be conceding that other laws of physics with different structures and uh, equations are metaphysically possible. So I don't think we need to necessarily decide what is and is not a metaphysically possible universe because we're playing their, by their rules for the purposes of the argument. I, I, I was actually going to make that point. I believe I read... Luke Barnes say that um, I had had a back and forth with uh, I can't remember the specific apologist and I was referenced to something that Luke had written and it was exactly that because it is seem it does seem that it is an open possibility that the reason the constants have the reasons they do the values they do is because it's physically necessary right and I think I, I don't know how you feel, but I think that Luke Barnes has a good point. I think there would still be something that needs to be explained. I think a, a different version of the fine-tuning argument is one given by uh, William Lane Craig. and It's not a, a probabilistic argument. It's a deductive argument where he says it's either due to necessity, chance, or design. So if you could show that it was the result of physical Right. So yeah. if you could show it was due to physical necessity, that would undercut his argument. Right. But showing that it was the result of physical necessity would not necessarily undercut the uh, the Bayesian probabilistic version, because since we're dealing with epistemic probability, it is an epistemic possibility, even if it's physically necessary, that the universe 
is the way it is. There, there are epistemic possibilities that go in other directions, so we can still put probabilities on these numbers. Interesting. So uh, let me pick your brain on that for a second. So when I heard that move the first time, my thought was, well, okay, but it seems like you're collapsing the fine-tuning argument into an argument from contingency, is what it sounds like. Now, perhaps I've got that wrong. Um, you think that you can? You were mentioning you could put probabilities on worlds where the constants are meet those conditions for life because of physical necessity versus ones that wouldn't. I, I guess I guess what he's saying is, imagine every possible. We have we have a theory of everything that says hypothetically we have a theory of everything that says the constants must be life permitting. The only possible values are these values in the life permitting range. Right. But we can imagine a hypothetical theory of everything that said the only possible values are values that are outside the possible range, or outside the life permitting range. So if we you know apply the principle of indifference across the the space of possible theories of everything that could have been actualized, it's still an infinitesimal probability that the theory of everything that just so happened to be true was one in which life was possible. I'm not sure if that's the same thing as an argument of contingency. I suppose that's something I would have to think about. But it is, it is. I guess suppose I suppose it's changing the the focus of the original argument. It's perhaps conceding the point and then changing the argument to a to in a different focus. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what it seems like. Because then it's basically wide open out of all logically possible worlds. Yeah, and right. another issue, I don't, why I don't know. The, why this is a set of possible worlds rather than another? And that's yeah. you know, going to be appealing to a principle of sufficient reason sort of thing there. So I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, it's not something I thought about a lot. But um, I, did, I did mention earlier that the, the justification that Robin Collins gave for focusing on this narrow reference class was a, a pragmatic one, which is a, this is the only one we can look at. But uh, a common move among defenders of the fine-tuning argument is to appeal to this thought experiment that was developed by a philosopher named John Leslie. Mm -hmm. And I think this, is, this has been, the, this is the focus of the paper that I wrote. So I don't know, do you want to get into, the, get into that? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I, I was just I looking closer at that. Yeah, I wanted to verify, like, uh, John Leslie, not John Leslie Mackey, not J.L. Mackey, but... No, this was, he wrote a book called Universes, yeah. and I'm not sure if he is a theist or something else, but it's, it's a, it was one of the earlier defenses of the fine-tuning argument, and he specifically addresses this criticism that I, so I'm not saying anything new, really, I'm just responding to the response to my criticism, which is... So just to recap, my criticism was we, we don't know what the, the total population of possible universes look like, so we have no idea what portion of them are life permitting. We only know what we we only know that it's rare within the subset of universes that we can examine, being those universes that share our laws. And John Leslie says, This doesn't matter at all. And he gives this analogy. So he says, Imagine you're in a room, it's a dark room, the lights are off, and you shine a light on this limited portion of the wall with flashlight and then in the middle of that illuminated portion is a fly and then suddenly a shot rings out and a bullet kills the fly and intuitively you would infer that this bullet wasn't just fired at random somebody must have been aiming at the fly and i think that's a good inference i'm not going to argue with that 
and I think if you can't see what the analogy is here, it's that since even though we can't see the whole wall, we also can't see the entire set of possible universes. We can only see an illuminated uh, portion of the wall. And so Robin Collins has called the subset of universes that we can examine the epistemically illuminated region of the space of possible universes. And just as we can, and this, according to Leslie and this, this analogy has been endorsed by Robin Collins and Luke Barnes and William Lane Craig. This, I mean, it's a very popular argument to give in response to the kind of thing I'm saying. They say, just as we can infer design in the case of the fly, that when that isolated target is hit, we can also infer design in the case of the isolated target of our universe being hit. And mm -hmm. I'm going to admit that we're absolutely justified in inferring intentional agency in the case of the fly, but we need to think about why we're justified in making that inference. And the reason is because, well, I suppose you, there are two possible routes you could get to the conclusion that someone was aiming at this fly. The first one is to say the illuminated portion of the wall that we were able to see is a representative sample of what the entire wall looks like. So we know that a bullet fired at random at this wall is very unlikely to hit a fly. And the reason we know that the illuminated portion of the wall is a representative sample of the entire wall is because in our background knowledge, we have a lot of experience with flies and a lot of experiences with walls. We know that it's really weird for an entire wall to be covered in flies. They don't, flies don't travel in packs of hundreds of thousands. So even if we can only see a small portion of the wall, we can safely guess that the rest of the wall basically looks the same. So we're able to make this Bayesian inference where a bullet fired at random is very unlikely to have hit this fly, but a bullet fired on purpose, this is what it's very, it's much less unlikely that it would be hitting the fly. So quite independently of the reason of the observation of the illuminated portion of the wall, we have independent reasons to think that the rest of the wall looks the same. And when it comes to the fine tuning argument, we just don't have this, this background knowledge to say that the unseeable universes in the set of possible universes are similar to the ones that we can see. So in other words, we have no reason to think that the reference class of universes with laws like ours, which is the epistemically illuminated region, is representative at all of the, the total population of possible universes. So I don't think that this fly analogy is very helpful. I think like a lot of cases in, in the way people defend the fine-tuning argument, they rely on these analogies. I mean, when you read the literature on fine-tuning argument, it's just riddled with analogies. And I think that's why the fine-tuning argument, at least to me, and I know to a lot of people, has this incredible intuitive appeal because it's so often defended with appeals to ordinary experience. And I don't think the ordinary experience carries over to this area. And this is just one example where I think the analogy falls apart. No, that's a but very that good point. Makes sense so far? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so far so good. I was going to say, I have a an initial worry about this analogy, but I don't know how good of an objection this is, so maybe you can let me know. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's disanalogous in a way because um, so with the wall, the fly, since it's lit up, that portion is lit up, you would think that the marksman, the guy who's shooting, is going to have his eye kind of attracted to that area and and then he's going to aim at the fly he can see in that illuminated portion. But with God and the possible universes that permit life, it doesn't seem like there's any region that's going to be illuminated and stand out 
among all the other possible universes that God could actualize, right? Yeah, so, and I, I think yeah. that is relevant to something I wanted to get to a little bit later because right now I'm taking for granted that the, in order to make this inference to design, it all hinges on whether or not we have reason to believe that the illuminated portion of the wall is representative or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And some people, so Robin Collins, for example, says he thinks that is the key here. He thinks that as long as we have reasons to think that the epistemically illuminated region is representative, the fine-tuning argument works. So let me read a quote from him. Because we are considering only one reference class of possible law structures, it is unclear how much weight to attach to the weight of epistemic probabilities one obtains using this reference class. Hence, one cannot simply map the epistemic probabilities obtained in this way onto the degrees of belief we should have at the end of the day. So I consider this to be a pretty big concession on his part. He's saying it depends entirely on whether or not this is representative. And I don't have the quote with me now, but in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, he says there's really no objective way of knowing whether or not this reference class is representative. But to go back to your point, Ben, there are people, and this was Leslie himself when he first made the argument, he didn't think that representativeness mattered. He said, even if it were the case that the rest of the wall was covered in flies, we should still think that somebody was aiming at this fly. So he's, it just doesn't matter what the rest of, of the wall looks like. We can just focus in on the reference class and just only pay attention to what's going on in the reference class. And once again, I agree with him in the case of the fly. So let's say, for example, or for the sake of argument, that the illuminated portion of the wall is totally empty with the exception of that one fly, and the rest of the wall is covered in flies. So it's not illuminated anymore. We can see the whole wall. And then a bullet comes out and hits the fly. Now we ask, what's the probability that a bullet would have hit a fly if it was fired randomly? And let's say there are so many many flies on the wall that it's, 75% 75% chance. But then we'll ask, well, what's the probability that this fly would be hit if... Well, actually, let me let me rephrase that. And what's the probability? Let's say the marksman has 75% accuracy. So it's just as likely that a fly would be hit by chance or if somebody was aiming on purpose. But there's still the further question, not just why did a fly get hit, but why did this fly get hit? And if we're... So if we're asking, given that a fly was hit, why was it this fly? On chance, it's very low because it could have been any fly that was hit. Right, but there's right. something special about an isolated fly that would be attractive to a marksman. And this goes back to your point about it being lit up. If it's, mm-hmm. if it's, if it's in an isolated region, you know, the human eye is naturally attracted to it. It's easier to hit. It's easier to see. It gives you a chance to show off. It gets you a chance to practice shooting things. Uh, so on, on the hypothesis that somebody was aiming this is the fly we would expect to get hit whereas on the chance hypothesis we have no reason to think that any one fly would be hit over any other one so that's the reason that leslie is right that in the case of the fly it doesn't matter whether or not the sample is representative but once again we have a problem here because this analogy just doesn't carry over into the case of possible universes right so so imagine that prior to the just to stick with this, this fly-on-the-wall analogy, imagine that prior to the creation of the universe, God is looking at this massive wall with different portions of the wall representing different types of universes governed by different types of laws. And within the portion of the wall that represents the epistemically illuminated region, right in the middle, there's a little dot that represents our universe. 
And but imagine that the rest of the wall is heavily populated by life-permitting universes with different laws. So all over the wall are dots representing life-permitting universes, and there are a decent amount of dots. It's not particularly unlikely that a space on the wall picked at random would have a dot. So the, the thing here, though, is that this is just an analogy. It's not like God actually was throwing a dart at the wall. So I think the factors that attracted the marksman to the fly on the wall just don't apply to God here. It's not like God's eye is naturally drawn to isolated targets. He doesn't want to show off or practice his aim. I mean, this is just a metaphor. So what, given that God wants to pick a life-permitting universe, why would he want this life-permitting universe over any other one? It would seem that whatever he's getting out of this life-permitting universe, he gets out of any life-permitting universe. Because his only goal, according to advocates of the fine-tuning argument, is to create embodied moral agents. And as long as the universe is life-permitting, he gets that. So there's nothing about this life-permitting universe that gives him anything he wants over any other ones, which is the crucial difference between this metaphor and the fly analogy, because there was something about that fly that had something to offer that all the other flies didn't have. Yeah, so, and it's not just the, the fly alone, but the, the oh, there's no analogy really to the illuminated region, the whole illuminated region, because um, it's not like God's eye is drawn to a whole subset of the universes that have our laws of nature, something right. like that, right? Because um, why would he prefer these laws of nature over others as long as um, life is going to be permitted in, in those other universes with right. other laws? So if we're going to stick with this approach of uh, using analogies, I think a more appropriate analogy would be something like this. Imagine that I tell you that I'm going to drive into the city for dinner and I'm going to go to a restaurant. And you don't know whether I just picked a restaurant totally at random, or I picked somewhere on purpose. And let's say that there are 100 restaurants in the city, and most of them are clustered around each other on one side of town. And then on the other side of town, there's one restaurant in, in an isolated region. So this restaurant that's isolated, it's there's nothing special about it. It's There are plenty of other restaurants of the same style of food. It's not particularly well-priced. It's not, it's not well-known to be your favorite. It's not less crowded. You don't know anybody who works there. It, I mean, it's... It's not worse or better than any other restaurant, right? So we have no reason to think that this restaurant gives me anything that another restaurant couldn't also give me. Now, let's say that you find out I went to this restaurant. What should you think? Is the fact that it was locally isolated evidence that I picked it on purpose as opposed to being at random? I don't, I don't think so because if I end up eating at this restaurant, the fact that I chose the one isolated one, it's not evidence that I, that I, I didn't pick it at random because it was no more likely on either hypothesis because – on chance, it has just as high of a likelihood as any other restaurant. Right. And if I'm picking it on purpose, it's still just as likely as any other restaurant because it has nothing to offer me compared to any other restaurant. And that's basically what's going on in the case of God and possible life-permitting universes. Our universe doesn't have anything to offer God that another life-permitting universe wouldn't. So he has no reason to actualize this life-permitting universe over any other life-permitting universe. And I just don't think the fly analogy carries over into this context. I can imagine, I can imagine the theist replying like this to your point. So maybe God wouldn't really have any reason to be attracted to this kind of universe with these laws, um, but it would still be more likely um, on the hypothesis that there is this designer that there would be life in the universe than if uh, the universe just came about by chance or something like that. Then that uh, if, back to the original point, which is you don't know that. 
if, if, if you're not focusing on this particular universe, your only point is that life in general is more likely on theism than on naturalism, then we're, we're circling back to my initial point, which is that in order to say that, you need to know what the life-permitting subset is within the pool of all possible universes. Right. And I thought, I thought that was precisely what we were trying to avoid by focusing on this reference class. Okay, good response. Yeah. It almost seems like it would be an infinite amount for either, right? If you're looking at all logically possible universes. Yeah, well, it would. It, it, I mean, it'd be a really, really big number, but it would be finite, right? Like po would... Possible universes. I, I think the pool of possible law structures is is infinite. I mean, there's. I don't think there's there's any limit on hypothetical, imaginary laws you could have. Yep. Sorry, I don't want to sidetrack, but I did want to, set, to kind of to tie in. I think your your point about the fly and whether or not we have, you know, the reason the fly analogy seems to work is that we have a lot of prior background knowledge about what a wall would look like, and generally walls aren't covered with flies, even if a fly is on the wall. And right. so that's why we would think that, oh, if it, the bullet hit the fly, it was on purpose. And you're, I think, very correct in pointing out that we just don't have the same kind of background knowledge about what possible universes there are, especially compared to universes with our laws versus universes with completely different laws. And I thought it was interesting just because it kind of ties back to the same kind of reasoning we saw when we had Felipe Leon on about mitigated modal skepticism. It's that we only have justification and been believing possibilities when they are kind of like the humdrum, things that we have experience with, right? Mm -hmm. When you're talking about something as incredible, like you said, infinite, like the space of possible universes that could exist with different laws of nature. I mean, that's, like we said, an infinite number. I don't know how you could say it would be analogous to the fly on the wall. Yeah. One of the, and, it, and it, it, to bring up the point of comparing you know, finite examples to this infinite, the area where the, this population is infinite, Robin Collins has, he's given an argument. So we, we kind of jumped ahead and talked about John Leslie and whether, cause he, and he's of the opinion that representative doesn't matter. But John, uh, Robin Collins thinks it does matter whether or not the epistemically illuminated region is representative of all possible universes. And he gives this argument why he thinks we should, our default position should be that it is representative. So he basically says that unless we have positive reasons to think that our sample is biased, we should think that it's not. And he gives an example of drug tests in hospitals using nurses and doctors as their, their test patients. And he says the assumption of these tests is that we have no reason to think that these doctors and, and nurses are relevantly different in any way. So if the drug works on them, we should think it'll work on everybody else. And so, he, so he's putting this principle for this epistemic principle forward, which is a sample should be thought to be representative unless there is a positive reason to think otherwise. But I think he's underselling the reason why we think these drug tests work. It's not simply that there's no positive reason to think the sample is biased. We have positive reasons to think that the sample is representative in the relevant way. Humans all have, you know, the same analogy. We all come from a, 
a shared common ancestor. We have the same basic biology. And there's nothing about nurses and doctors that is different about this. So we have positive reasons to think that if a drug has a certain effect on a nurse, it's going to have the same effect on any other human with the same biology. So, and another point here is that the sample of doctors and nurses is a finite sample compared to a finite population. And the sample of within the epistemically illuminated region is finite, but the total population is infinite. So it's hard, I mean, I don't see how we could ever say that a sample is representative if it's always going to be infinitesimally small compared to the total population. almost I don't know I was I was thinking if it was related to the normalization objection uh, but that does seem a bit distinct um, well I think the I'm assuming the people listening to this will know what the normalization objection is one of the ways they get around that is to focus on the finite region within the epistemically illuminated region because if you're just comparing one finite subset to another finite subset or to a uh, then you would be able to to get a an actual probability out of that. So I do think that being able to focus in on the epistemically illuminated region then it pulls a lot of weight in the fine tuning argument. If you're able to do that, the argument is much stronger and may might fail for other reasons, but it's it's doing a lot of work in the argument, and that's kind of what I'm. Yeah, you're, you're addressing a very distinct. You're, it uses a distinct objection. Versus the normalization. Normalizability, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm great with words, the best words. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think you've made a good case here against Collins's belief, his, his analogy supporting the belief that we should just um, assume that the sample is representative as long as we have no positive reason to think it's unrepresentative. Um, but suppose he were right about that about that, that we could just take it to be representative because we have no reason to think otherwise, um, then I think that would cause problems for skeptical theists in their responses to the problem of evil, especially people who think like Michael Bergman, who in his paper, um, Skeptical Theism and the Problem of Evil, articulates these non-theistic uh, skeptical theses. They say we have no good reason to believe that uh, the possible goods, possible evils, and entailment relations between them that we know of are representative of the ones there actually are, right? Um, yeah, he's, he's just forward, saying forward, uh, exactly the opposite of, of the epistemic principle that Robin Collins put forward. Collins is saying that a sample is representative until proven guilty. And then Michael Bergman is saying a, if we need a positive reason to think that a sample is representative. And if we have no reason to think that our sample of goods and evils and the entailment relations between them is representative of them, we just can't make a judgment on whether or not a, a perceived gratuitous evil actually is gratuitous. I think Collins would say, let's work with what we have. And Bergman would say, it's unfortunate that we are, are limited in this way. And I wish we could make a, an inference, but we just can't because we need to be able to see the full range of of possibilities in order to make that judgment. I don't know. There are probably a lot of theists who would be happy to say that there is a tension here. The, the skeptical theism is not, it's, it's unpopular among a decent amount of theists for a, another reason, which is that if we are not in a position to say 
what God would or wouldn't do because we don't have the access, epistemic access to the sorts of moral outcomes that different actions would, would result in, mm -hmm. then we can't make any kind of prediction about what he would do. So one, right. of, the, one of the key premises in the, in the fine-tuning argument is this outcome is likely if God exists. But an advocate of skeptical theism would say you can't make that judgment at all. Right. So it does, there is a tension, but like most tensions, it, this seems to cut both ways, right? So if we deny that we could know uh, that, uh, the, in terms of the, the possibility space, so you can't make an inference that based on the uh, values of the constants that God exists, then don't they have the clapback to say, well, we we do the same thing when we infer skeptical theism. You just don't know the total range of possible goods, so you can't render a judgment. I suppose they they could say that, but what they what they can't do is, on one hand, be a skeptical theist, and then on the other hand, say, let's work with the epistemically illuminated region. It's fine. Fine-tuning argument works. Right. I I suppose the only way they could do that. Well, yeah, because because one of these is about the nature of our evaluative and moral judgments, whereas the other is about the causal reality. So that's one way that they could potentially put forward a relevant difference between the two. I don't know if that would work, though, because the, the thing that's doing the work in the case of skeptical theism is still ultimately a concern about whether or not a sample is representative of the whole population. Right. And they are putting forward a principle that would extend... It, it doesn't have anything to do with the morals of the situation. It's just we have a subset of a sample. The total population is massive. We have no epistemic access to it. And therefore, we just can't say that it's representative. So I don't think any kind of... I mean, I think that... that but I mean, you could point to the consensus among physicists about the physical world and then point to the you know widespread disagreement among moral philosophers and ethics saying that, you know, look, we just understand these physical theories better than we understand the ethical theories. And that's because our physical, our understanding of the physical theories are a more accurate representation of the truth. I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm kind of throwing this you're out saying, there. You're saying this is what uh, something they might possibly say in response yeah, to yeah. me. And I, I would say, they will say this. Um, right. Just, yeah. Well, I, I was like, say back to that. Well, sure. We have, we have a very good, not me personally, I'm not a physicist, but physicists have a good understanding of our physical world. But we're not talking about our physical world. We're talking yep. about every possible physical world. Yeah, it's a philosophical question, not a ah, physical question. So right. now it, it's more about modality. Yeah. And yeah, okay, it's about what we have epistemic access to in either yeah. case. So does this mean so that if the so we're in a uh, the sword always cuts both ways? So if we say unless we can come up with relevant differences between the fine-tuning argument and the problem of evil, um, we atheists couldn't say that skeptical theism fails and also consistently say that the fine-tuning fine argument fails. I suppose this is one possible relevant difference that a theist could give between the situation involved in skeptical theism and the situation involved in the fine-tuning argument. They could say, when it comes to our moral judgments, we have no positive reason to think that our subset is representative of the whole. But in the case of fine-tuning, we do have a positive reason to think that 
universes like ours are representative of the whole. So we haven't talked about this yet. Could a theist right, mm-hmm. give an argument that our subset is like other universes? Collins didn't do that. He just says we don't have a positive reason to think it's not. But Luke Barnes give, has given an argument that universes like ours are, repre- are in fact representative of all possible universes. In fact, what he says is that if anything, universes like ours, universes in the epistemically illuminated region, are overrepresentative when it comes to life permitting universes. So if a life permitting universe is rare in the epistemically illuminated region, it's even more rare in the general population of possible universes. So if anything, the fine tuning argument is being generous to naturalists and overestimating the probability of life on chance or naturalism or atheism or whatever hypothesis we're comparing it to. So what, you know, what, so what's the reason for him thinking that? He just gives this, once again, it's a thought experiment. So this is, Barnes gives a thought experiment and his goal is to prove that universes in the life permitting, I'm sorry, universes in the epistemically illuminated region are in fact representative of the total population of universes. So he says, imagine you're in a forest and you're looking for mushrooms. And he says, as an illustration, it's a good idea to look for mushrooms near other mushrooms. If the conditions are just right for mushrooms around a particular tree in the forest, then nearby trees are more likely than some randomly chosen tree to also be right for mushrooms. Similarly, looking at universes that are similar to ours prejudices our search in favor of finding life-permitting universes. And it is all the more surprising, then, that life-permitting universes are extremely rare, even in this biased sample. So what he's saying, essentially, is that since life is already known to exist in our universe with our physics, these universes in the epistemically illuminated region are biased in favor of life, and and therefore universes with different physics, the ones that I've been saying we don't have access to epistemically, are even less likely to be life-permitting. So unlike Collins, who says our sample should be deemed representative because we don't have any reason to think otherwise, Barnes is going a step further and saying, we actually have a positive reason to think that this sample is something we can focus on because it is representative or even over-representative of, of life permitting universes. So once again, I think there's just a problem with the analogy not, not carrying over in relevant ways. I mean, if Barnes were in a forest and he decided to give up looking for mushrooms after discovering that none of the other trees in his immediate area had mushrooms, he'd be justified. And this is because the presence of mushrooms around a tree is determined by a number of factors that Barnes would know would be shared by most of the trees in the forest, like similar access to sunlight, similar quality of soil and you know, environments, the same laws of physics. But if Barnes then went on to infer that given the shortage of mushrooms in this forest, mushrooms therefore must be rare in most forests, that would be a really hasty generalization because the conditions are not the same in all forests. Uh, the, the factors that caused the shortage of mushrooms in this forest would be could be totally different in other forests. And he's no reason to think that this forest is representative of all forests. And it would be an even hastier generalization if Barnes then inferred the fact that mushrooms are rare in this forest means that mushrooms are rare in all possible universes, even ones govern, governed by different physics. I mean, this is just an extremely hasty generalization. And it seems to be the same sort of hasty generalization that he's making in the case of the fine-tuning argument. Right. So I think a, a, an analogy that's more analogous would be something like this. 
imagine two aliens are they crash land on earth on a, on a little island just like a little sandbar and everywhere they look there's water in every direction and one of the aliens says um, man look at all this water we can't live here we need to leave this planet because we need more land i mean none of us can swim and the other alien says well maybe not so fast the the ship's computer says that this planet is really big we're only on this one little area maybe there is more land somewhere else we should check it out and then the other alien who was supposed to be representing luke barnes in this scenario says well why bother we already know there's land here our search is already biased in favor of land because the conditions for land are already right here so if land is rare here land is going to be rare, even more rare elsewhere on the planet and the other alien says well what do you mean and the alien says well you know we already have a, a limited amount of land here in our biased sample so the, the burden's on you to show that it would be any different anywhere else we have good reason to think that there's no land at all on this planet and then the other alien could say you know but this planet is so big maybe the conditions are are different in other places and the other alien would respond i mean they might be different but we already know that our, our search for land is biased so what's the point if anything this is all the land we're going to find the land in other places is going to be even smaller so and of course these aliens would be wrong you know land is about 30 percent of the planet so they're just making a really hasty generalization and if anything the the alien is making a much less hasty generalization than barnes is making because at least in the case of the alien he knows that the formation of water is infinite intimately tied to the laws of physics and he at least knows that the laws of physics are the same on this planet and on other planets so this at least gives him some weak reason for thinking that if water is abundant on earth it's abundant on or it's abundant on this part of earth it's going to be abundant everywhere on earth but Barnes is going even farther than that and saying it's true even in other situations with totally different laws of physics. And I think that's just going way beyond what we're able to infer. It's, it seems very akin to the first uh, objection you brought up to with Robin Collins's view in that we just you can't make that inference when we're talking about the set of all possible universes that could exist with different laws of nature. Yeah. I mean, imagine if the alien went even further and said, he makes the incorrect inference that there's hardly any land on this planet. It's all water. And then imagine if the alien that he's with says, well, how about we try another planet? And the other alien says, well, we already know that there's no land on this planet. All the other planets are going to be even, they're going to be the same. We have reason to think this planet is, we don't have any reason to think this planet is not representative of all the other planets. So there's just no land in the universe. Let's call it quits. I mean, that's that's essentially what the fine-tuning argument is doing. It's saying if life-permitting universes are rare in this subset of universes, it's just got to be rare everywhere else. Yeah, and it just seems to be this sort of... You're already kind of playing this crazy game where you're saying, well, imagine that the constants could be different, right? And so you're you're already making this kind of a science fiction sort of assumption that thing that's even possible and so it just seems that you've got a very good point saying well that's not the only thing that could be varied and we don't have any reason to think that our universe is representative yeah and i guess they could, a theist could come back and say i agree i have no reason to think it's representative but representative doesn't matter representativeness does not matter and they appeal to the john leslie fly analogy so i feel like 
we're ending up going back and forth between saying it doesn't matter whether or not representativeness, whether or not the sample is representative, essentially the John John Leslie position and the Robin Collins position. In order to escape right. one criticism, you have to adopt the other person's position, and you go back and forth. Yeah, but you've got an answer for either one, so. Yeah. All right. Okay. I think we're coming up on an hour. I think, was there any other points that anyone wanted to bring up? Uh, I think I'm good. I, wow. I feel like that one, that one definitely went over my head. <laughs> I think it was, okay. I was great. Um, yeah, it was a great conversation, but it's one I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to because there was a couple of times where I was like, oh, man, it, get, it got so abstract. Yeah. Sure. Well, I think that's just the nature of, of the argument we're talking about. Yeah. Imaginary yeah. universes. I've got to parse it all out in my head. Sounds like Ben's volunteering to edit this week. <laughs> well, Aaron, I want to thank you very much for coming on. It was a wonderful conversation, and it was great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. If you appreciate the tone and content of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review for us on iTunes. All music was created by Work of Wolves. We here at Real Atheology would like to thank our Patreons. Kashi Savarina, Paul Pinos, Richard Kane, Lucas Stewart, Brandon McClarity, John Damon, Michael Tofsred, Roe Wilms, Ed Atkinson, Kid Blachowski, Andrew Snyder, Jason McLuta, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Sange. If you're interested in supporting Real Atheology, you can please come to our page at patreon.com slash realatheology.